You are now listening to the July 17th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have the seven signs, the sermon, and the God of Abraham. First, let's begin with the seven signs. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. This is Brian Winston with Signs of Jesus. Last week, we began contemplating Jesus' first sign. It involved making wine from water at the wedding in Cana. What do you think Apostle John wanted to tell us by recording how Jesus turned water into wine? It is highly unlikely that he merely wanted to tell us that Jesus was capable of making wine from water. Jesus reminds us in John chapter 2, verse 11, that this was the first sign Jesus showed us. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. John said that Jesus manifested his glory in this sign and his disciples believed in him by witnessing this first sign Jesus performed. We learned last week the significance of wine in the Israelite culture. We learned that wine signified happiness and was a symbol of blessing for them. Having read the Old Testament, the people of Israel believed that God would send the promised Messiah on the day of the Lord God's judgment. On that day, wine would be plentiful and would flow over the cup. This is the reason John highlighted As the first sign, Jesus turning water into wine, the place where that happened was at a wedding in Cana. John wanted to emphasize how Jesus provided wine at the beginning of his ministry on earth, the choice wine and in abundance. By doing so, John wanted us to know that Jesus is the promised Messiah as had been prophesied in the Old Testament. Here's a quick overview of the wedding in Cana as it appears in John chapter 2. Jesus, his mother Mary, and his disciples were invited to a wedding. Soon it became apparent that the wine ran out. No more wine at the wedding. Well, wine signified happiness and a symbol of blessing. Given that cultural significance of the wine, Running out of wine would spell a bad omen and would certainly not bode well for the bride and groom. People might even wonder whether there would be happiness and blessing for the new couple. Needless to say, a great panic would have descended on the people at the wedding, especially on the host of the wedding. According to the biblical scholars, running out of wine was a serious offense, so serious that the host of the wedding could be held accountable to compensate for the damage. You might imagine the commotion that broke out. At some point, Jesus' mother noticed the commotion and alerted Jesus. Then Jesus says something puzzling. This is what he says in John chapter 2, verse 4. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. Oddly, Jesus addressed his mother Mary as woman. One plausible explanation is that it might signify the proclamation of the start of his ministry on earth. Jesus lived as Mary's son up to that moment, but he was now proclaiming at that moment he is son of God, no more a son to a mother, to start his ministry on earth. Jesus might have been saying that his relationship with Mary was now that of a woman and son of God. Some of the listeners may recall that there was another instance when Jesus addressed Mary as woman. That was on the cross. In John chapter 19, Jesus called Mary as woman in his last moment. This time, it was to proclaim the end of his ministry on earth. Jesus started and ended his ministry on earth by addressing his mother as woman. Now we come back to his response at the wedding in reference to his time 
having not yet come. That is actually very difficult to interpret. There have been numerous interpretations on this. The most accepted interpretation is that Jesus' mother Mary wanted him to proclaim that he is the Messiah by performing a miracle at the wedding. To that, Jesus replied to Mary that it was not the time yet for him to reveal that he's the Messiah. This interpretation becomes more plausible when we consider the fact that Jesus actually hid from the people his true identity as their Messiah for some time. Despite all the miracles and signs and healing of people, he urged them not to spread the word about his works and ordered them to refrain from disclosing his messianic identity. Jesus revealed his true identity of being the Messiah to the world only at the time God appointed. To a few of his disciples and close friends, he did reveal that he was the Messiah. To really appreciate this sign about wine, we need to put ourselves in the shoes of those disciples. The disciples who were following Jesus at the time did not know that well about who Jesus was. They had been told, however, that he was going to be captured, die on the cross, and resurrect in three days. They could not comprehend that Jesus came to the world to put the sins of all humankind on his shoulder. Moreover, they could not fathom that Jesus they saw every day was in fact the Son of God, and he himself is the God. The disciples were merely waiting for a Messiah who could defeat Rome and free them from its bondage. They wanted to be freed from the oppression of the foreign power and reestablish the throne of David to make Israel the kingdom of God again. They were expecting that Jesus was that Messiah. The word of promise that these people relied and trusted on is from Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 to 8. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and refined aged wine. And on this mountain he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces, and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. They were waiting for a Messiah who would defeat death, wipe away the tears from his people's faces, and remove the reproach of his people from all the earth. Because Jesus' disciples knew the prophecy of how God would host a lavish banquet with well-aged wine when that Messiah comes, they came to believe in who Jesus is when they saw how Jesus made and provided the choice wine from the water at the wedding in Cana. Jesus revealed himself to his disciples by performing a sign of turning water into wine and made them believe that he was the Messiah they had been waiting for. Now they would see many signs, wonders, and miracles for the next three years while they were with Jesus. They would also receive the full truth of the gospel from him. Eventually, they would receive the Holy Spirit and would gain the spiritual eyes through which they would understand who Jesus really was. They would plant their feet firmly in the faith of Jesus Christ. They believed that Jesus was not just a Messiah to deliver Israel, but the Messiah who came to save all God's people from the world. That faith started that day by them recognizing Jesus who started the ministry on earth by providing the choice wine and an ample supply and fulfillment of the prophecy from the Old Testament. Do you believe in that Jesus, the one who defeated death by his own death, who wiped tears away from his people's faces so that they will never mourn, cry, and get sick? If you said yes, you have done so by your faith. I pray we witness the blessing of such a faith in all of us. This concludes this week's story of Jesus' sign, 
at the wedding in Cana. God bless. Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Joshua Vinson of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is The Wrong Way. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Joshua. You don't have to be around church long to hear the saying, you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. I'm sure you've heard that before. And that can be contextualized to make some good sense and offer a good warning. But in the Bible, what's fascinating is it usually draws us back to another reality, which is that you can be so earthly-minded that you're no heavenly good, or that you're so earthly-minded you're actually no earthly good. So we need to make sure that we're thinking about things in the light of the way that Scripture calls us to. And if you're so earthly-minded that you're no good for others, it's even more so true for church leaders. And uh, you know that over the last couple of decades, we've seen a number of famous Christian leaders who have fallen, and we've been reminded that human leaders, they may fail us. Jesus never will, but human leaders do, and they will. False teachers are so earthly-minded, they're not heavenly or earthly good either. 
We'll see this in a number of ways. The first appears in, in verses 10 to 11, where we find the false teachers are boldly arrogant. They're boldly arrogant. You can't miss how arrogant these teachers are as you look at these first verses. Notice in the second half of verse 10, how it says they are described. It says, bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. Now that's a little confusing, so we need to unpack it a little bit. Bold and willful is pretty clear. It's, it's roughly the same thing, these two words, bold and willful. Uh, it could be understand, and a lot of authors do, a lot of commentators do, as a kind of doubling down, saying that they are boldly arrogant. They are really arrogant guys. Now, both words carry this idea of claiming a rank above oneself. You see yourself as higher than what you are. Now, as you notice, they show pretty clearly that their hubris is apparent in this fact. They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Now, who are these glorious ones? Well, some take this to speak of human church leaders or civil leaders. But verse 11 seems to say that these glorious ones are greater than the angels who are greater than, uh, who will not blaspheme this group, whoever they are. Now, most commentators, as they look at these, these glorious ones, are likely right, calling them fallen angels. So I take it that these are fallen angels, these glorious ones that are not to be blasphemed. See, glorious, it seems, I know, a strange word to, to use to describe a demon, but I think it's pointing to their origin, that these are heavenly creatures. That's their beginning. That's how the Lord made them. And, and also Jude 9 seems to support this idea where it says, but when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. In other words, Jude seems to give the same kind of idea that Peter does. The good angel Michael did not slander or blaspheme against the devil who is the head of fallen angels. Peter here, though, he seems to be speaking more generally about how good angels don't slander fallen angels. See, the false teachers seem to slander demons in a way even Michael the archangel would not. Now, what did they say specifically? Well, maybe they denied a final judgment of demons or a spiritual world at all, which would mean that they don't face a judgment either. Maybe Richard Bauckham's right when he says that the teachers ridiculed the notion that their sins would make them a prey for evil angels. In other words, we can live it up in sin and we are not vulnerable to demonic activity. Of course, a few things are clear here. First, did you notice that angels are greater in might and power than demons? That's good news, right? Of course, Jesus is more powerful than them all. And second, there is some danger in view from demons for those who are engaging in sin. Now, this is not like new to the New Testament, right? If you read Ephesians 6, it says that our war is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and principalities and heavenly places. Language speaking of spiritual beings, fallen angels that we are at war with. Believers believe, we believe that there is a spiritual world out there that actually is engaging us, whether or not we recognize it. Just because you don't believe, just because you don't believe, hear me, in demons and angels does not mean that they do not exist. Just because you don't believe in the unseen God does not mean that he does not exist. Any more than just because you can't see gravity, it does not exist. These are realities about the world that we live in. And so here we see that it is clear that Paul is warning about if you are living it up in sin, don't think that you are not more vulnerable. It's not like there's not some kind of just consequence to not being led by the Holy Spirit, but instead doing the works of the flesh. Now, this seems to warn that these false teachers have given themselves over to sin and they have become vulnerable to evil forces. But third, it's clear here that these false teachers are boldly arrogant, viewing themselves as high as heaven, right? Pride is in full view here. 
Now, don't miss this. God opposes the proud. And these false teachers of Peter's day are not looking to heaven where Jesus is seated next to the Father and from which he will return to judge the living and the dead. They are arrogant and numb to spiritual things. See, they were strikingly proud, slandering the demons. They saw themselves as greater than angels. Now, the irony, the great irony here is they actually look, according to Peter, like brute beasts. They want to rise to the heavens, but he said, you're actually lower than humans. You're looking like animals right now. Notice second, in verses 12 to 13, they look like the lowly beast destined for the last day of judgment. We see that in verses 12 to 13. Now, notice here that he is connecting the nature of the animals with their destiny. Here's what he says. Look with me there again in verse 12. He says this. He says, but these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, Born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong is the wage for the wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. Now we'll look more there in a minute, but these false teachers, they are already lower than they know. And they don't know how low they can go. See, Peter says these false teachers look like brute beasts today. They are irrational. They are led by fleshly desires, their their wants. Whatever it is that they want is what drives their decisions. And they are, he says, destined for destruction. Now that might look like a strange picture, but he's actually picking up on a common theme and quote that we find in the ancients about animals. And he's comparing this quote to these false teachers. They used to say that animals were born to be caught and destroyed, just the nature and, and future of animals. But when it says they will be destroyed in their destruction right after that, it most likely means that these false teachers will be destroyed in the coming destruction of the demons on the last day. Now Peter understands that these false teachers have received their just desserts in verse 13. In other words, it's not unjust Judgment that they look forward to. He he says there, look, suffering wrong, they are suffering it as the wage for the wrongdoings. What is this wage for the wrongdoings? Well, the the picture I think is a a kind of picture of an eschatological lex talionis. And you're like, okay, you just lost me. But what I mean is, is he's saying, I'm looking to the last day and the destruction that we've been talking about. And as I'm looking at that, I'm looking at the judgment that's coming, and I want you to know that what they receive is what they deserve. It is just. God is just in it. And I think he's going to explain why in just a minute. But for now, he is saying God is always just. They will receive a punishment equal to the crime. No more, no less. See, false teachers face the eternal wrath of God along with the demons as God's just punishment. But the great irony is their arrogance, their self-sufficiency, their pursuit of the pleasures of this world left them look looking more like unspiritual brute beasts. Now maybe these teachers seem to be winning at life. And uh, maybe they look in this moment like they are more than, uh, than doing well. That they're winning. That God is in some ways accepting their lifestyle. They appeal to more non-Christians. It seems like their spirituality is more accepted. Maybe because it's difficult to tell the difference between the false teachers and the world around them. Maybe the weak are in danger of interpreting God's patience as acceptance. Accepting their life and their doctrine. But God says these false teachers look more like animals than humans. See, God has created us, according to Genesis 1 and 2, male and female, as the pinnacle of His good creation. God created humans uniquely to worship Him and to make Him known. God created you and me to glorify Him forever, to enjoy Him forever. We are made for more than earthly pleasures, which are but beams of light that are really intended to draw us back to the radiant source, which is God's glory Himself. But catch what Peter says here. There's a kind of self-destructive nature 
that's natural to sin, hear me, that causes you to collapse in on yourself. Do you see it? You are destroyed in the destruction that you have created. There's an image here, I think, of the way that sin comes with a kind of self-destructive nature that causes it to collapse in on itself, destroys both you and those around you. And verses 13 to 14 give us a snapshot of the many ways these boldly arrogant brutes are showing themselves. I notice third, six characteristics of a false teacher. We see six characteristics that he, he sort of goes through really quickly. Now, this isn't all the things that would describe a false teacher. And not every one of these things will be present in every false teacher. But it gives color to the snapshot that he's trying to, to provide us with. Notice what he says. In the second half of 13, he says this. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. Accursed children. Now, notice how Peter quickly rattles off these six descriptions of a false teacher. First, he says they're shameless. Did you notice that? They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. Now, the word for pleasure here, it's, it's a, a common word you're probably familiar with. Hedon, which is the word that we get hedonist from. That's someone that is living for earthly pleasure. Pleasure's not bad, but uh, even the Greeks understood that if you were living for pleasure, uh, they called it one of their four deadly sins. You can't live a successful life living for pleasure all day, every day. Now, sin is often pictured by darkness in the Bible. Because people usually practice sin in the dark. There's a sense in which they want to hide their works, hide their deeds, because it hides them from the shame of it all. Not just from God, but from others. But catch this. You know that you are not in a good place. Are you hearing me? You know you're not in a good place if you are hiding your sin in the dark. You catch that? If you're like hiding in a room, alone from others, sinning, not in a good place. Catch this though. You're in a worse place if you don't know that you're in a bad place as you revel in your sin in the light of day. There's a kind of growing sort of sense of hardening that's going on if that's where you're at. See, this envisions here, I think, a kind of hardened conscience or heart that they no longer feel guilt or shame over their blatant sins. We need to realize and recognize, I think, that there's a warning here. We we need to make sure that we are not giving space to sin in our lives, that we're putting it to death, because if we give sin an inch, it will try to take our lives. But notice also, their shame infects the community in verse 13. They are blots and blemishes on the community. Now this reminds us of the blemishes that would have rendered in Leviticus a sacrifice as being unworthy, or a priest as being unable to serve. But in 3.14, as Peter ends this letter, he tells Christians as they are awaiting the return of Christ to be found by Him without spot or blemish. Same words. And so here, these false teachers are not ready for Jesus to come back. They're not ready. It's not going to be a good day. Notice, they are actually reveling again, but here in their deceptions while they feast with you. Now the word for love feast looks a lot like the word for deceptions, and Jude mentions love feast in a similar context, speaking of that meal that they would have had along with communion. Some think that as they were copying this text that they got it wrong because the words look so similar. But I think that Peter, along with others who have said this, meant deception, not love feast. See, Peter sees the false teachers as deceptive. They're functional hedonists while participating in the love feast enjoyed by the church prior to communion. That meal where we celebrate the atoning work of Jesus on the cross for us in the flesh because we are sinners in the flesh. It's a meal that looks forward to the return of Christ to judge the living and the dead. That's why whenever Paul talks about communion in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, do this so often as you do it in remembrance of me until Jesus comes back. 
See, we don't know for sure exactly what was going on in the way that they were sinning. Uh, Jude 12 speaks in a similar context of shepherds who feed only themselves. Maybe these false teachers were practicing gluttony, drunkenness, more probably. We don't know for sure. But they clearly are not laying down their lives for the sheep as Christ did. They clearly are not seeking to live morally upright lives as Jesus did. They clearly don't look for Jesus' return from heaven with a just judgment. They're not ready. And it's also affecting others. But notice third, uh, here their hunger for sin is insatiable. Did you see him use that language? Uh, This verse says they have eyes full of an adulteress. The language is really strong here. He's basically saying that these false teachers, as they are looking, they only, when they see women, see people that they can uh, potentially have adultery with. See, I think this picks up on the sexual nature of their sin, but also notice how it highlights the insatiable appetite for sin. It's insatiable. They've never had their full. They're never satisfied. They always want more and more, and more is never enough. They covet every woman they see. And this is a a uniquely kind of given over to sin type thing. Notice fourth, they hunt unsteady souls. That word for entice that you see in verse 14, it comes from uh, the image of fishing or snaring, a kind of, of hunting activity. And it came to be associated with moral temptation as well. If you look in James 14, it uses the same idea where our sinful desires lead us to sinful actions. But notice that these false teachers hunt unsteady or unstable souls. Those who are not firmly grounded in biblical doctrine. They are easily led astray. They are easily trapped. They are easily taken advantage of. Let me just ask you this morning. Do you know if you are unsteady or unstable? Do you know? What does it look like? To be stable. Do you ever feel like you are sufficiently stable until Jesus comes back? I would say that we all are together in the process of becoming more stable. We need each other to grow in stability. Uh, I am grateful that we have people here who are gifted in teaching and more stable. And those who have walked with Christ for longer and are more stable. And those who are younger who are trying to get more stable. But all of us are trying to get more stable together. Are we ready? Are we ready for those who might hunt us? Hunt us in their teachings. Hunt us through the literature that, they, that we read. Do you understand that when you are picking up a book, that there are people that, maybe even unbeknownst to them, are actually writing in ways that might not be healthy for your souls? Are we discerning in the kinds of things that we are allowing into our hearts? Are we careful about the people that are speaking to us about what God is like? about who Jesus is, about how we are to live and to make it to the end when Jesus comes back. I think here what Peter is saying is we need to, be, we need to make sure that we are discerning because there are those who are teaching things that are dangerous. So you can hope better amidst trials if you seek to follow Jesus. So seeking to obey Jesus in all things makes us more stable. If we want to be ready for those who might draw us away, we need to build up what? Endurance, strength, deep roots. And those things come with being faithful and enduring through trials, following Jesus when things get difficult, not giving up when things seem insurmountable. It means trusting Christ at all costs. When we do that, there's a strength that's built that is prepared more for the next challenge that comes. We need to be trained in endurance. Expect Jesus to ask you to do things, hear me, that are not natural to you. I don't think there's anybody in this room who would say that my spiritual experience has been that Jesus told me to do this and every time it was so easy. Exactly what I wanted. No, I think that what we would say is is that I thought it was hard and then I resisted and it got harder. And now I realize after so many years that it's harder than I knew. I'm stronger than I was. But I'm just recognizing the feel is real, right? It's hard. 
We need to build up endurance. You know, it, it reminds me sometimes when we think about like following Jesus, we think about that hypothetical Catholic who gives up eating snails for Lent, right? Like you're supposed to give up something that's hard to give up, and you're like, well, I want to eat more snails. Like, it is not hard not to eat snails. It's like automatic. Following Jesus is hard, right? It's like taking up a cross, not, not eating a snail. See, following Jesus means that we will need to be generous when we are prone to have greedy hearts. And Jesus will often call us to be generous when we are in a low moment. When we're not trusting him as much. We will need to learn to turn to Christ rather than alcohol to claim and calm our anxious hearts. We'll need to love an imperfect church sacrificially. And have imperfect pastors shepherd us as gifts from God. We will need to spend more time in God's word and less time on Netflix. We'll have to learn to trust and obey. This is the way. This is the way. But notice they are also in verse 14, greed experts. Now the word trained here, notice that while we need to be training in endurance, they are already training. They're training in greed. In fact, this word comes from gymnasium. It's where athletes would train to grow strong in something. Now notice here, it's their hearts, the hearts of these false teachers that have been going to the gym to train for the sport of greed. Now, greed is a broad term that can mean the desire for money, more money, more sexual pleasure, power, food, and so forth. But when coupled with greed in 2-3, there's a good indication that money is at least in view here. They make disciples, these false teachers. And as they are making disciples, they are not chalking up people that are going to make it to heaven. They're chalking up prophets. See, greed can look like spending too much or saving too much. Greed can look all kinds of ways. It's not always easily detected. In both cases, we can trust money to do something for us, whether we're saving a lot or spending a lot. Maybe we save a lot because it makes us feel safe. Maybe we spend a lot because it makes us feel attractive or powerful. But there is some kind of motivation that is causing them to put their confidence and trust in money, and it's affecting the way that they do ministry. It is a heart issue that is going on with the false teachers. But notice 6. He calls them accursed children. Now, this means children of the curse. Uh, I take this to be a common Jewish way of describing the quality of a person. Judas was the son of destruction. That means that he was destined for destruction. These were children of the curse, meaning that they were under the curse. These false teachers are still under the curse. They are not truly part of the people of God who have the blessed hope of the resurrection life. They might look like they are on the rise today, but Peter says the lumberjack's coming. Peter warned in 2.2 above that many would follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth would be blasphemed. But notice what he does in verses 15 to 16. He points to the Old Testament prophet Balaam as a mascot for these false teachers. He says, these false teachers have a mascot from the Old Testament. His name Balaam. By the way, Peter, apparently, New Testament guy, right? Loved to preach from the Old Testament. I'm just going to keep pointing that out. But here he goes. Peter's allusion to Balaam. He says, Balaam's donkey could teach them something about the right way. They've been following the way of Balaam, but if they would have listened to the donkey, the donkey could have taught them about the right way. Now, Peter's allusion to Balaam here is linked by this repetition of that same phrase from verse 13, the wage of their wrongdoing. Notice here we see again that Balaam loves the wage of his wrongdoing. Now look there again with me at verses 15 to 16. Here's what he says. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Now, Peter is picking up here on a strange story from Numbers 22. If you go read that later today, uh, you'll say, yeah, that's a strange story. But in this story, the Israelites are on the doorstep of the Moabites. They're about to take them over. When the Moabite king tries to hire some prophet named Balaam, very enigmatic figure, and he's the son of Beor, and he wants to pay him to prophesy against Israel. He's like, hey, I'm going to pay you. 
He sent some guys to say, we're going to pay you. If you'll just prophesy a curse against Israel, then we will give you a ton of money. And Balaam seems to be game. He's like, I like money. Maybe that's what the Lord's saying today. And so he goes to God, and God tells him not to curse his people. Balaam was like, man, I didn't see that coming. So Balak, the Moabite, or, or the, um, Moabite king, he raises the price and says, I will give you anything that you ask. And so Balaam says, you know what? Maybe I need to go back to God and make sure I heard him right. And so he goes to God again. And God allows him to go. But on his way, his donkey begins going crazy. He's uh, going off the path, which is literally the way of Balaam. And he's, he's literally pushing him up against a rock. He, he's terrified of this path. And in the moment, you see Balaam just getting so angry, and he's striking the donkey and striking him. But he keeps turning back. And eventually, when it gets so bad, the donkey opens his mouth and says, why are you doing this? Now, that's a strange day when your donkey starts talking to you right? And the donkey is preaching to Balaam. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord in the story before the prophet Balaam did. See, the donkey sees this mighty, fierce angel, more powerful than him, right before him. And then the angel reveals himself to Balaam. And it makes it clear that he was in more danger than he knew. The angel says, if that donkey didn't turn back, I would have killed you where you stood. Now these false teachers here, they look like Balaam. They are less spiritual than the donkey. Less spiritual than the brute beast who did not turn back just like Balaam. They are both blind to spiritual things and they are also uncaring. Of it. They love money. Now interestingly, Peter calls... These false teachers, Balaam, the son not of Beor, as it says in Numbers 22, but of Basar. Now, some have looked at that and said, oh, obviously Peter got it wrong. Or maybe this is how the Galileans pronounce the name. But it's more likely a translation of the Hebrew word for flesh, Basar. That makes sense in context, doesn't it? These are people that are not living according to the Spirit, but according to the flesh. And he says, these false teachers are like Balaam, living according to the flesh, not according to the things of God. Balaam was not a son of the Spirit, but a son of the flesh, living for money of this world and not fearing God. He was blind to angels. No fear of them, though he was immediately in danger. See, Balaam, like the false prophets, had hearts that loved gain from wrongdoing. And Peter said he was a madman not to see the spiritual danger he was in. Maybe you're trying to think about false teachers this profile. Pastor of the largest church in the United States, Joel Osteen, he, he doesn't preach on sin and he makes a lot of money doing it. He says that's not a big deal. I read my Bible, it says sin's a big deal. Or what about Bill Johnson of Bethel, who recently said pastors are not supposed to rebuke their people, but only to encourage them all day long. Same week I was going through 1 Thessalonians 5, where he ends with basic Christian teaching, and he says, the pastors that you respect are those who teach you, but also those who rebuke you. And if they don't rebuke you, they're not doing your job, they don't deserve respect. There are lots of teachers that are not teaching God's Word, or according to God's Word. Paul says... That we are to be a people who are constantly calling people to live according to God's word. Correcting them when they are getting off the way and onto a wrong way. Who, what pastor will not love you enough to put you on the right path? But we should look at the profile and consider if we are living for pleasures in this life or the life to come. Because notice, these false teachers are leading many astray. So are we proud before God? That's a good question I think for all of us to ask this morning. Could it be that we've lost sight of the future that awaits us in heaven? So that we have settled for the pursuits of this earth. See, pride seeks to raise us up above the angels. It it seeks to tell us that we can do it. That we can make ourselves great. That we can create a future for ourselves that is not given to us by the Father. And yet what Christ says is, in your pride you can seek to raise yourself above the angels. You will fall so short you don't even know it. But Christ came to bring us all the way 
up to the Father. All the way above the angels. I mean, have we lost sight of the, the brightness of our future? Just consider this. A couple of verses that I want to leave you with that I hope sends you singing into the week. One, we shall judge the angels. Did you know that? 1 Corinthians 6, 1-3 says this. Do you know that we are to judge the angels in the future? This is something Paul just kind of throws in there. Like, this is why you don't sue one another and why you deal with stuff in a local church in the context of church discipline. It's because what do those courts that are passing away have to do with God's people that last forever? Do you not know that one day you will judge the angels? That's why church members should not sue one another but take it to the church. And that's how high Paul views the local church. See, we shall judge angels whom Peter's false teachers of his day were thinking that they needed to raise themselves over. Jesus brings us higher. Second, Revelations 3.21, we shall sit with Jesus just as Jesus sat down with the Father. Jesus tells the saints, the one who conquers, I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne. No earthly past, no earthly pleasure can compete with that. Sitting with Jesus on his throne forever. Anything? Do you have anything? You got nothing. There's nothing that comes close to that. In other words, our authority will only be realized by virtue of our being in Christ. If you're not in Christ, then this isn't you. Conquering means faithfully enduring suffering until death or Jesus comes back. If that is us, we faithfully endure together, we shall reign with him, we shall sit with him. In other words, if the choice is more earthly pleasure or Jesus, what's the right choice? Jesus! It's church, I mean, it's hard to get Jesus wrong, right? We may be hurt and humiliated in this life, but we shall reign with God. In other words, pride, self-sufficiency can't get us to where the angels are, but Jesus can. He can get us to the Father. Jesus gets us higher than our wildest dreams. Are you hearing me? There is no dream that you can create for yourself that takes you higher than what Christ has for you and where you are going. That theology, I believe, is the theology that helps Christians remain faithfully. I mean, when you look at these false teachers, don't you just want to like, sort of like a, an ostrich, pick your head up out of the stand and just look around and say, is there anything else here? There is. It's Jesus. Trusting that reality changes your life. That's why Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.12, if we endure with him, with Christ, we shall also reign with him. Now, if you're here this morning, non-Christian, and you have not put your faith in Jesus, and you've been living for this world because it's all that you've known that there is to live for, I want you to know there is so much more in Christ. Don't leave today before talking to me or another Christian about the hope that you have, sure and steady in Christ, the future that you can have. There is a future for us who are the people of God, all of us in Christ. Don't leave without putting your faith in Christ. But if we want to be more earthly good, we as a people need to be more heavenly minded. Let's pray. Well, this morning as we come before you, we praise you because you have sent your son. And Father, in sending him, you have sent him to deliver us from a, a wrath that we deserve. And oh, Father, the, the future that awaits us is brighter than we can imagine. You give us glimpses and, and echoes and hints of what is to come, Lord, but there's no way that you could give the fullness of it to finite minds who are trying to comprehend the infinite. And so, Lord, we pray that this day as we go from this place that you would give us hearts that are excited about the future that is to come and we pray that that would shape the way that we live today. And Father, if there are those here who do not know you, who haven't gotten in on that deal, God, we pray that this morning they would put their faith in you. I will praise Him. He is exalted. 
forever exalted and I will praise His name. Now you can find all the programs of Heart and Soul Ministries on podcast. You can easily play this week or past week's programs, or you can even download them to your vice in only a few minutes. Try to search for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries at your iTunes store now. The following program is called The God of Abraham. everyone, my name is Terry from the God of Abraham. Last time we learned how we don't seek God, but God finds and comes to us. Also, when God calls us, we must follow His leading and He will show us the path we should take. We learned about these three things. We meet God and by His calling, we are on the path to heaven. God is leading us on that path today. Today, we'll start from Genesis chapter 12 verse 1. God told Abraham to leave his country, his relatives, and his father's house. The Hebrew word for country or land is Eretz. We can look at God's word like this. Leave your Eretz and go to the Eretz I will show you. In other words, leave the land your body was living in until now and go to the land I will show you. I believe there's a lot of meaning in this. As we have seen, Adam and Eve sinned in the beginning. They were driven out of Eden and continued to move eastward. We learned that going eastward has a symbolic meaning of going farther away from God. They went eastward and settled on that land. It was the land where Adam and Eve and Noah's descendants once settled. 
On that land where they settled, God told Abraham to leave and go to a new land he will show. I believe God's heart towards Abraham is contained in this verse. I'm sure you already know the meaning of the next part. God told Abraham to leave his relatives and his father's house. Relatives symbolize the idea of depending on others rather than God. Father's house symbolizes one's identity. For example, Park is my family name, but the Jews of long ago did not have family names. Therefore, they were usually introduced as someone's son. For example, Terah's son, Abraham, Nun's son, Joshua, and Jesse's son, David. Therefore, when God told Abraham to leave his father's house, it means leaving his old self behind and begin a new life identifying as God's people. God made a promise as he told Abraham to leave. We'll look at Genesis chapter 12 verse 2 to see what kind of promise it was. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. How do you think Abraham felt about God's three promises? Did he feel like these promises were possible? Abraham was 75 years old at that time and he didn't have a child. Abraham probably couldn't easily believe God's promise of making him into a great nation. God says something great in Genesis chapter 12 verse 2. God said Abraham would be a blessing. I often see people who apply this verse to us. They say, you will be a blessing or our church will be a blessing. This isn't necessarily bad. It's good for us to be a blessing to others and for our church to be a blessing. However, what God said to Abraham is not the kind of blessing we know, but it was a word of promise. God explains the meaning in the next verse, which is verse 3. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The meaning of you will be a source of blessing, and you will be a blessing, is not to bless others as we commonly use. God was saying that Abraham would be the standard of blessing. As we read from verse 3, God will bless those who bless Abraham, and whoever curses Abraham, God will curse. Therefore, the standard of blessing or curse is decided by whether one will bless or curse Abraham. Abraham is the source of blessing. Let's think about one more thing from here. In the first session of this program, we said the motive behind this program is for us to see God's hand through the life of Abraham. Through this program, as we see Abraham's faith towards God being shaped, we want our faith to become shaped as well. When God called Abraham, he promised three things. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. Abraham probably had difficulty in believing these promises. However, we know that God's promise was fulfilled. God made a great nation through Abraham. Israel is not the only nation of which Abraham is called father. The Arabs who came from Ishmael are also from his seed. Israel who continued from Isaac, the promised son, is also from his seed. Genesis chapter 25 says, Abraham had taken another wife whose name was Keturah, and she bore him six more children, and they became a nation. Furthermore, a nation was formed to the Messiah Jesus Christ, which was different from the physical body of Israel. The spiritual Israel was also formed through Abraham. Our faith towards God is strengthened as we see him fulfilling his promise of making Abraham into a great nation. Abraham's name has become the most important name in the world. In one sense, among the world's religion, his name is more significant than Jesus' name. Do not misunderstand what I am saying. Jesus' name is most prominent in Christianity. I'm sure there are people from other religions who have heard of Jesus. However, Abraham's name is not only significant to Christians, but also to all Muslims and Jews. Abraham is the father to Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Our faith towards God becomes more established as we see, hear, and understand his promise of making Abraham's name great fulfilled. It is evident that Abraham became a blessing. Through history, we know that God brought judgment upon those who tried to harm Abraham and his descendants 
and God blessed those who were good to Abraham. Also, we know that humanity received a blessing through Jesus Christ, who came as Abraham's descendant. As we read from the Word, all of God's promises to Abraham were fulfilled. In this way, as we see God keeping His promise, we must realize and remember that all His Word is trustworthy. If we don't realize this, then we will take God's Word in the Bible lightly. We might say, eh, He's just saying that. He doesn't really mean it. In this way, we may lightly pass over the word that makes us uncomfortable and believe and accept only the word we like and are comfortable with. However, we cannot do that. We must not discard any word. We must believe that all of God's word will surely be fulfilled. Now we will look at verses 4 through 9. Verse 4 says Abraham left there as God had directed him. God told Abraham to leave his relatives, but it says his nephew Lot went with him. More than a relative, Abraham probably felt like Lot was his son. Lot was the only son of his dead brother, and since he didn't have a child, Abraham thought of him as a son more than a relative and took him along. Instead of saying Abraham disobeyed God's word, it would be right to say that he didn't fully understand God's word yet. He considered Lot as his own flesh and blood and took him along. Verse 5 says, Abraham took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, and his servants, and they set out for the land of Canaan. Verse 6 says, Abraham traveled to the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah in Shechem. Verse 7 says, The Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. God appeared to Abraham when he reached the great tree of Morah in Shechem. I want to take a closer look at this part. Let's think about why God appeared at this place. God appeared in Shechem, which is in the region of Samaria, east of Jerusalem. In Shechem, God appeared at the great tree of Morah. The word Morah means to see or to teach. If we translate this literally, it means the seeing tree or the teaching tree. Scholars say this place was a place of divination. At that time, the people in Shechem came to this place to ask and receive answers from their gods. Abraham didn't know the geography and he didn't know where to go. He arrived in a new land and it happened to be a place of divination. Perhaps Abraham lingered around this place and said, Where do I go now? Should I ask the God of this place? We must remember one thing. Abraham still did not know God well, and he was accustomed to the worldly culture of the Near East region. We will see more of this side of him. Let's think about it. Abraham lived 75 years in places called Ur and Haran. As we mentioned before, he lived in Ur, which was the region where people served the moon god, which was the greatest god in the Near East at that time. As we read from the book of Joshua, Abraham came from a household that served other gods at that place and made idols. Therefore, serving other gods was not a strange thing because it was the culture at that time. Now Abraham entered the land of Canaan and arrived in front of the place of divination. This is where God appeared to him and reminded him of the promise. To your offspring I will give this land. At God's word, Abraham built an altar at that place. In the Near East culture, building an altar meant offering that place to the gods. The people sacrificed to seek the presence of the gods and offer that place to the gods. We must pay careful attention to Abraham's action. In a place where idol worship was rampant, in front of the great tree of Moreh, where the people of Shechem gathered for idol worship and divination, Abraham built an altar and offered sacrifice to show others that God was his God. He was publicly acknowledging God. From this, I once again see the essence of faith and how we are as Christians. The world believes, serves, and follows other things, but we must publicly show that we only believe, serve, and follow God. Boldness and courage are needed to do so. We can see how Abraham is being molded into the father of faith. However, Abraham made many mistakes. Next time, we'll learn about the first mistake he made of deceiving others by saying his wife was his sister. As we look at this scene next time, I hope we could get to know more about Abraham and God. I'll see you next week. Goodbye.
we are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.